You may be seated. Thank you, Jason and team, stepping up today while the Bradshaws are on vacation a little bit. I know, uh, thank you, guys. I know a lot of folks uh, still traveling, still away on fun, exotic spring break uh, vacations. Uh, you're not one of them. I wasn't one of them. Uh, Hey, welcome to Centennial Church. My name is Ross. So glad they're here. And we do see fresh faces among us and those back from uh, college with us here today. Also, some special guests all the way back from Colorado, Todd and Julie Broom over here back with us. Julie, hey, some people know you. Uh, Julie is one of my strong prayer warriors. Uh, so great to see them. They, uh, it wasn't very pretty up there in Colorado, so they decided to come down south uh, where there's less marijuana and... Uh, so anyway, good to, glad you guys are back. Also over here, I can't fail to mention uh, the two little two-week-olds over here. The Bachelmans brought the whole car load today. Uh, Lena and Kaya are over there uh, sleeping. I'll try not to wake them up, but uh, congratulations to the Bachelmans. If you want to help them out, please uh, touch base with Nicole Nicholson. Is Nicole in here today? We got a meal train uh, going for them, and if you can uh, give them a a transplant of sleep. They'd probably appreciate that too, but I don't know how that works, but good to see you guys. Brave, huh? Two weeks out, already bringing the kids. Yeah, don't touch them. Don't cough on them, okay? Uh, but look at them and, and ooh and all of them. So glad that you are here uh, today. I do, uh, I want to thank Brent for filling in for me last week as we enjoyed some staycation time over our uh, the weekend of our 10th anniversary. You had a great time uh, just kind of laying low and uh, staying. I was able to uh, to go to Houston last week to visit Deanna Sarsfield. Many of you know Deanna, one of our members, uh, had a brain injury in uh, back in November. She's uh, She had a cranioplasty on Friday that went well. She's been texting me. She said her head really hurts, uh, as you can imagine, uh, but she's doing great. It was great to visit with her. She is such a great spirit and such great progress. It really it's a miracle uh, that she's with us, but she's progressing well. I also want to say this. You know, when things like this happen, uh, we're kind of quick on the scene immediately. A lot of times that enthusiasm and that care wanes in the, in the months that go on. Uh, so I want to encourage you just to stay engaged. Um, continue to write her cards. Uh, send her a message on Facebook. Uh, just reach out to them as, as time passes. She's hoping to be back up here in rehab uh, by April 1, so she'll be close uh, for visits and things like that. So please uh, keep her uh, in your prayers. But uh, thanks again uh, for your prayer for her. Thanks for your prayers and uh, for Brent for covering for me last week. You know, I mess up uh, these anniversaries and birthday things occasionally. Uh, I take full responsibility for that. I won't take full responsibility uh, for this one, though. We did enjoy a date night and then uh, came back to, uh, to the house to watch a movie or something. Let me just say, just as a heads up, I don't recommend as, a, as an anniversary movie uh, just jumping into the O.J. Simpson uh, miniseries. It's, it's just a damper on the night, uh, so just a bit of free advice for you there. But uh, anyway, hey, uh, we are, uh, yeah. It sucks you in, though, I tell you that. Uh, hey, I would love, we're back in the book of Romans today. I would love for you to stand up as we read the passage today. Richard Black is going to read uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 16 for us, and then I will pray for us, and we will uh, walk through this passage, okay? So uh, follow along as Richard uh, reads to us. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous, righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. And even though they do not have the law, they show that the law, or the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, not uh, that it would be my words, but it would be your word through the Holy Spirit that you would uh, use this passage in our lives, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us alone, that you have not left us wondering your will, but you have given us your word. You have given us the scriptures to guide and lead us and to transform us by your Holy Spirit. So please be with us in these moments. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 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 You can be seated. Hey, quickly, why are we studying the book of Romans? Why Romans? Well, there's a lot of reasons uh, for that. One reason is historical, and I might uh, tell you in weeks to come, but uh, just closer to home here, I thought Romans would be a great uh, book for us to go through just to reinforce some of our core values as a church through 2017. If you don't know it, on our website, we have, we, we have posted, we have eight core values as a church, and three of them I just want to point out to you this morning as kind of a backdrop of why Romans seems to be a good book uh, for us to look at. One of our core values as a church is Scripture. We value God's Word. Our, our, it says like this, we treasure God's Word. It is our anchor, our authority, our light, and our hope. So our, our desire as a church is to regularly be in the Word. Uh, that doesn't mean that we won't do topical messages, but we're going to stick to God's Word. And the, the meat and potatoes of our church is to walk through large chunks of the Bible, uh, books of the Bible, or other, or other places, and just 
systematically, paragraph by paragraph, walk through the Scripture because that's where God has given us His revelation. Secondly, uh, not only do we want to be a, a church about the Scripture, we also want to be a church that puts the gospel first. The gospel, the good news. We say we never outgrow the good news. We are a people founded, formed, and fueled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, you don't get saved, you don't find Jesus, and then move on to something different. You continue on with Jesus, you continue on in the gospel, going deeper in the gospel. And so we, the book of Romans is all about the good news. That's the title of this series, The Good News. So what a great book uh, to push in as we think about putting the gospel uh, at the forefront of everything we do, of every day that we wake up, of having the gospel drive us. Thirdly, mission. Uh, we've, we've set a 2017 uh, theme, a 2017 goal of each one reach one. We're asking every member of our church to prayer, care, and share. That means pray for people uh, in your circles of influence that may not know Christ. Look for opportunities to care for them and also to share the gospel. To be on mission in your neighborhood, in your workplace, at school, on your teams, whatever. And so as we go through the book of Romans, it's all about the gospel and it's all about mission. It's going to continually remind us of the gospel and it's going to continually remind us of our mission to take that gospel uh, to the world around us. Okay, so that's one of the, a couple of the reasons that we are walking through this book in 2017. All right? Uh, let me say this. The passage that we're looking at this morning... Uh, addresses one of the big obstacles to our mission. One of the biggest obstacles that we face as we share the gospel with our neighbors and friends, and that is the obstacle of the hypocrisy of religious people. The hypocrisy of religious people. The Bible actually addresses hypocrisy. It's in these verses that we just read. Maybe you're familiar with uh, this quote, a great quote uh, by Brennan Manning says this. Brennan Manning says this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. If you're new to church, if you are not yet a Christian or you just become a Christian, those words probably resonate with you. Yes, that's uh, someone told me earlier this morning. Yeah, that's it. It was the hypocrisy that I saw from religious people, even from church people, from people that claimed to be Christians. Uh, this is a major obstacle that we face. Well, guess what? The scriptures speak to it here this morning. So join me uh, in Romans chapter 2. Uh, and the passage kind of breaks down in three kind of easy parts. First of all, we see the fact of judgment. And secondly, we see the results of judgment. That's verses 6 through 11. And then thirdly, we see the impartiality of judgment. That's verses 12 through 16. So first of all, the fact of judgment. Verses uh, 1 through 5, he, he, he begins to turn uh, away from the people that he's addressing in chapter 1 towards this kind of religious uh, group. In chapters 2 and 3, he says, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, what's happening here is that the person that's judging is chapter 2 is doing the very same things that they're judging other people for doing. And the, the words, have no excuse, might ring a bell to you if you remember uh, chapter 1, verse 20. He was talking about the Gentile pagan world that denies God. And in chapter 1, verse 20, he says, they're without excuse. 
They know there's a God. God has revealed himself to them. They are without excuse. But to the religious person and the self-righteous, hypocritical person in chapter 2, he says, you also, you have no excuse. And what he's saying is, you should know better. You do know better. So every one of you who judges, you are without excuse. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Here's what happens with the hypocrite. Uh, When we struggle with hypocrisy, what we're saying is God's, God's favor of me, God's kindness of me, God's judgment will not fall on me. Somehow I am exempt. I won't be held to the standard of others. So not only uh, do they say, do they think they will escape God's judgment, but according to verse 2, they presume on God's kindness. Look at verse 4. The hypocrite presumes on God's kindness. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and, pray, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why does, why does God not just strike us dead when we, uh, when we fail When we uh, go against him, when we sin, because he's patient, because he's kind. But to the hypocritical person who continues in sin and saying, I know this is wrong, and I tell other people it's it's wrong, but I'm still going to do it, they are presuming on God's kindness and patience. God's grace and God's patience and God's kindness is not given to us to take advantage of God's grace. It's given to us to give us space and time to repent of our wrongdoing and to repent of our sin. So the hypocritical person somehow rationalizes, hey, uh, God's, I'm I'm outside of being judged by God or being disciplined by God. He's He's gonna come down on those people, but he won't come down on me. And God's grace, because perhaps in chapter two here, this person is a good Jewish person. They had the, the covenant and the Old Testament law, and they were God's chosen people. So somehow they think, hey, because I'm a Jew and because I have all this pedigree and this religious uh, upbringing, that I, I'm God's favored person, and therefore I can get away with this. And God is saying, no, you can't. You are presuming uh, that my judgment won't come on you. You are presuming that my patience means that you can get away with it. And you can't. Not too long ago, I had to confront uh, a brother who uh, was wrecking his marriage, destroying his home. And my, some of my words to him were, brother, God is not going to let you get away with this. He will come after you with a severe mercy, a mercy, a grace, but it will be severe. He will not, if you know Jesus, he will not let you get away with this. He will hold you to account. But the hypocritical person feels exempt from this. And the sign, the, the diagnosis, uh, according to Paul in verse 5, says, because of, the, because of the hardness of your heart, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You're hard-hearted. You're blind. You're unrepentant. And notice here that According to verse 5, there is this wrath. There is this day coming, the day of wrath. There is this day of wrath coming. 
And some of you are thinking, whoa, what? Did we just step back into Puritan times? Or, you know, is this Jonathan Edwards up here? Sinners in the hands of an angry God? It, the Bible speaks of this day of judgment and this day of wrath. Last week or two weeks ago, I guess it was, we saw that God's wrath uh, in chapter 1, verse 18 is present wrath. And it's kind of God's passive wrath. In, in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And I said that the wrath of, sometimes the wrath of God is his present wrath where he is just letting us get away, seemingly, with what we are doing. The wrath of God is currently, present tense, being revealed. That's God's present but passive wrath. Well, that's not all of God's wrath. Because according to verse two, chapter 2, verse 5, there is a future wrath also. A day when God will judge all peoples, and we'll, he does that impartially as we see as we go on here. But there will be this day of wrath. And those who have rebelled against God, those that have been hypocritical, will face the music. And we have to ask this this morning, uh, does our walk match our talk? This is uh, something that we need to be uh, cognizant of, that we may uh, speak boldly of Jesus, but turn and walk, around, walk out and do things that speak poorly of Jesus, that reflect, reflect negatively upon him, upon his church. So as one uh, commentator has written, you who preach on Sunday, do you between Monday, what do you do between Monday and Saturday? You who preach against legalism, do you burden others with lists of rules to how to curry God's favor? You who like to jump on the social bandwagon, do you pay a penance of wage to immigrants who do your yard work because you know they're not legal residents? Do you claim to be pro-family? You who claim to be pro-family, do you invest time and energy in your spouse and children? <clears throat> you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you watch internet porn in hotels, and on business trips. You who tell us to tithe until it hurts, do you give to God from your own pocketbook? You who boast in your denomination, do you hold your denomination to account when it fails to report sex abuse or when it sucks up to politicians you know have a sham faith? You who tell your kids of the importance of church, do you take any opportunity you have to skip church? You who tell your kids of the, the need to read the Bible, do you give your time to the Bible? Do you do what you say? That old adage, do what I say, not what I do. Does it apply to me? Does it apply to you? Verses 1 through 5 say that there will be judgment. There will be this day when God puts things right. In verses 6 through 11, we see the results of God's judgment. The results of God's judgment in verses 6 through 11, he says he's going to render to each one according to his works. Now, if you've been here or if you uh, are a good Protestant evangelical Christian, when you come to verses 6 through 11, it causes some questions in your mind because it seems to indicate that you're going to be judged by your works. Look at, uh, again, verse uh, 6. He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. What's going on here? These are difficult passages. If you believe that salvation comes by grace through faith, not by works, what do you make of, of this paragraph here? I mean, has Paul just kind of waffled? Has he changed his mind from what he just said in chapter 1, verse 16? You remember, that's one that I've recommended uh, that you memorize. It's a great verse. Somebody over here have it tattooed on themselves, maybe? Uh, chapter 1, verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How does salvation come? It comes to everyone who believes. And look over, flip over to chapter 3, verse uh, 20. Chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says it clearly again here. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How does righteousness come? By faith in Jesus for all who believe. So is Paul, is he, uh, is, he, is he changing his mind here? Is he waffling? Is he going back and forth? What are we to make of these passages that talk about we will be, he will render to each one according to his works? Well, a couple options. Option number one, which I don't think is a real possibility, is that Paul is confused. He's, he's waffling. He's, he's contradicting himself here. I don't think that's the case. But two other options about how to interpret this. One option is to say that Paul is laying out here in verses 6 through 11 a hypothetical. He's saying if, if you could keep the law of God, if, if you could uh, be perfect in a sense, then God would render to you according to your works and you would get eternal life. But to those who don't keep the law, you will get wrath and fury and the judgment of God, right? So some are saying this is a hypothetical. He's just putting it out there as if this could happen, this would be the result. Okay, another, uh, another explanation of this, another interpretation, which I like uh, slightly better, is that, that Paul is, is saying here that uh, he's, he's looking at salvation holistically. And he's saying that the works uh, that accompany salvation are evidence of salvation. That if you've really trusted Christ, there will be works that follow that faith. And those works are not the basis of salvation, but they are evidence of salvation. So the person here that is doing good is the person who has trusted Christ and therefore does good in response to his salvation and in response to the grace that he's received. Let me show you a couple other places in Scripture that I think would reinforce this idea. That this is not salvation by works, but this is someone who has come to faith in Christ, and this, the good works that they do are the evidence of the fact that they do, in, they do in fact, possess salvation. Okay, Jesus' words himself. Uh, this isn't on the screen, but turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 24, one of my favorite evangelistic verses. Jesus talking here, red letters. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
What is salvation based upon? Hearing and believing. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life, okay? Those are the words of Jesus. You hear my words, you believe, you have eternal life, all right? But just a few sentences later in verses 28 and 29, listen to what Jesus says. He says, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, is Jesus contradicting himself? No, I don't think so. I think, but what he's saying is the person that's saved, they come to faith by hearing, and then their life after that shows some evidence. Now, how much that is, that's debatable, but that shows some evidence through their work, through their good works, that they have indeed trusted Christ. Okay, flip over also this famous uh, verse, Ephesians 2.10. Oftentimes we quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but we don't uh, say Ephesians 2.10, which follows right behind it. Verse 8, another great one to memorize. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Question, how are you saved? For by grace you are saved through faith. That's the answer, right? And he goes on to clarify. To clarify, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Verse 9, not as a result of works that no man should boast. I mean, how, how more clear could he be? You're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man should boast. But the passage goes on in verse 10 because he says this. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is Paul saying? He's saying you're, you're saved by grace through faith, but the salvation that saves you by grace through faith is accompanied by works. In fact, they're works that God prepared beforehand, that he predestined that you walk in light of. There are works that you and I have to do that God prepared, prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Okay? That's uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Also, uh, in our adult Bible fellowship, but just uh, they are studying the book of James still, right? The book of James. Turn over to this uh, difficult passage, James chapter 2. James 2.14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Uh, verse 18. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 18, he's saying, if you can show your faith, okay, just by saying it, can you really do that? Now, you can say you have faith, but the best way to show your faith is by works, by giving evidence of that faith. The faith that saves is a faith that's accompanied by works. So uh, the analogy might be uh, a train. What's pulling the train? The engine, right? The engine of the, of the gospel, the Christian train, is faith. Grace through faith is what pulls the train. The caboose is the works. It's tied to the train, but it doesn't power the train. It's connected, okay? But it doesn't come first. It comes second. But the, the train runs, the train is fueled by grace through faith. Does that help? So I think that's, uh, that's what's going on here in Romans uh, chapter 2, 6, uh, 6 through 11. Uh, if, if we look at the whole of one's life, they have come to faith and works follow that faith. But to the one that never has faith, everything they've done is 
burned up its like bad works. Okay? There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Those are hard verses. Those are verses that talk about a final judgment. And while we're here talking about a final judgment and these verses, it gives me an opportunity to talk about a book that I'm concerned about. A book that sold millions of copies that's now been made into a movie. And when the movie, the sh- when the book, The Shack, came out in 2009, I was concerned about it. I was concerned about what it would, not only what would it teach about the Godhead and who God is, but also about some other things. And some people pushed back on that, and some people said, hey, it's just a fiction book. He's not trying to lay out a theology here. He's trying to minister to people that are, that are hurting. Okay, but what's happened in 2017 is now we have a movie, and we also now have a nonfiction book written by Paul Young, the author, in which he lays out his theology. And in that first reading of the shack in 2009, I thought it was uh, a bit imbalanced. He talked about how in, in the book, he talked about how sin is its own punishment. Uh, he, didn't, he had kind of that present wrath of God pictured, but he didn't have that future wrath of God uh, pictured. And that raised question marks for me. Well, now in 2017, that his new book, his nonfiction book, has been released. And with the movie that no doubt you will hear about, I want to talk briefly about this as we're talking in Romans chapter 2. Uh, his newest book concerns me even more because he lays out his theology and the book is called, the title of the book is called Lies We Believe About God. He's saying these are some lies that we believe about God. But let's look at the chapter titles of what he says are the lies about God. Chapter 27, sin separates us from God. Paul Young says that's a lie. That's misleading. Chapter 15 is called Hell is Separation from God. You need to get saved. Verse 13, God is, or chapter 13, uh, you need to get saved. Chapter 3, God is in control. Let me read uh, to you briefly from chapter 13. You need to get saved. I mean, what, it, don't we preach that? I mean, isn't it, doesn't that sound like a, a biblical concept? I was, yes, it does. Let me read you from his nonfiction book, uh, the chapter 13. Paul Young writes this, God does not wait for my choice and then save me. God has actively, decisively, and get this, and universally God has acted decisively and universally for all humankind. Now our daily choice is either to grow and participate in that reality or continue to live in the blindness of our own independence. He goes on, are you suggesting that everyone is saved? That you believe in universal salvation? Paul Young writes, that is exactly what I am saying. So the veil is taken off. What he alluded to in a fiction book, he has now come out plainly, clearly in his nonfiction theology and said, these are lies. These are things that need to be cleared up. So I'm saying to you as a student of the Bible, be careful. Now I'm not saying don't read it. I'm not saying necessarily don't go to the movie, but know what you're getting, okay? And know what's behind the book and know what's behind the author and what he is saying. Revel- excuse me, Romans chapter 2 And other places, all through the scripture and certainly all through Romans, talk about a day of judgment. And you may not like it, but that doesn't mean it's not true. The results of judgment, verses 6 through 11. Uh, Thirdly, verses 12 through 16, we see the impartiality of judgment. 
the impartiality of judgment. And what he says in verses 12 through 16 is, look, uh, you think you're good, okay? These uh, hypocritical Jewish people, or they might have been just kind of religious Gentile people. You think you're good because you're a moral person, or you think you're okay because you have this religious pedigree. You're a good Jewish person. Well, you're going to be judged based upon your, uh, your allegiance, your obedience to the law that you've been given as a Jewish person. You have God's covenant. You have God's law. You, you know what's right and wrong, so to speak, right? And you're going to be judged according to what you've been given. Even if you think you're beyond judgment just because of your pedigree, you will still be judged. But what about the Gentile? The question because, well, what about the Gentile? This is written uh, to a Roman church where there's both Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentiles, they didn't, they didn't grow up hearing the Torah. They didn't grow up hearing these Old Testament stories. How is God going to be fair and judge them? And the answer we see here in verse 14, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, do not have the Old Testament, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What is he saying? He's saying, you have guilt, Jews, because you have a clear law that was given to you. You know. But Gentiles, even though you don't have the law, you also have the law written on your heart. Every human has their conscience and has a law, a natural law written on their heart to where they know some difference, and this varies from culture to culture, but all cultures know that it's wrong to kill. And all cultures know that it's wrong to steal. There is a natural law, even in a Gentile heart, even to the, to the, the person off in the jungle or in the bush, they have some knowledge. They have been given some light of God's revelation. And Paul's point in verses 11 through 16 is that each person will be judged in light of the knowledge that they have. So if you're a Jew, you've got the law, you will be judged according to the law you have. But if you're a Gentile, you'll be judged according to the conscience that is written on your heart. What you know in your mind is right and wrong. And according to verse uh, chapter 1, verse 20, you will be without excuse just by what God has revealed to you in his creation and in your conscience. God will judge, and God's judgment is impartial. Verse 16, chapter 2. <clears throat> Before I go to chapter 2, verse 16, let me remind you of what we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, that memory verse. <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 16, what does it say about the gospel in chapter 1, 16? It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Chapter 1, verse 16 says the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Look what chapter 2, verse 16 says about the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 16 says that the gospel brings judgment. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The gospel is the power of God, but the gospel also means there will be judgment. There's good news because there's bad news. The bad news is that judgment will come to every person. What, how, 
how can the gospel, how can judgment be good news? How can it be good news that God's going to judge the whole world? Uh, for most people, for, for people that are not believers, say, you, you, you old-fashioned Christians, you, you backwater, uh, antiquated, outdated people, how can you believe in a God of judgment? I believe in a God of love that, that won't judge people, that would, never, that would never judge people eternally. How can you believe about How can you believe that? How can that be good news? Well, let me tell you why it's good news. It's good news because there's judgment. Think about it this way. If there were no judgment, would that be good news? Do you want to live in a world where there's no final judgment? Do you want to live in a world, do you want to worship a God that doesn't hold people accountable? That's not good news. And some people say, hey, if you believe in a God of wrath and a God of judgment, that's going to turn uh, people that follow that God into violent, vengeful people. They're going to be abusive parents because of this idea of, of an abusive God who punishes people. I beg to differ. Uh, a, a people that believe in a God who ultimately punishes is a people that can take their hands off and say, God's going to get his way. I, therefore, I don't have to. You follow me? If there's, if there's no God who judges, then guess what? You and I better get to judging. We better become vigilantes and take things uh, into our own hands. But guess what? There's good news. If there's a God who judges, then I don't have to take vengeance. Because ultimately, someday, my God will judge and he will work it all out. OJ may get off. Somebody else may get off. There might be imperfect just, justice. Not all the facts may be known. There may be slights to justice and, and uh, complications to justice, but in the final verdict, in the final court of God Almighty, there will be perfect justice. And that's actually good news for hearts that were made for justice. Well, how do you, how do you escape the justice that you deserve? How do you escape hypocrisy? How do you escape the sin that uh, has you captured? Well, the answer to all those questions are the same. It's because God in the gospel has not just given us a law. He has not just given us a standard to meet, but he has given us a savior who has met that standard. See, a hypocrite is someone who knows the standard, misses the standard, but then judges other people by the same standard, right? But a Christian is someone who knows that they haven't just broken God's standard, they've broken God's heart. They've rebelled against a God who loves them. And guess what? They haven't just rebelled against a standard, they've rebelled against a God who bled for them. How do you fight hypocrisy? How do you fight sin? It's not by holding on to the standard. It's by holding on to the Savior. See, when we look at the cross of Jesus, what we're reminded of here, this is the good news for hypocrites. When we look at the cross of Christ, what we see is that there is a standard. The cross shows us that. There is a standard. But you know what's even better than that? The cross shows us that there's a Savior 
who kept that standard. And as you and I look at the cross and we see that our Savior kept the standard but bore our punishment, bled for us, nothing but that will warm our hearts to want to follow that Savior faithfully. So you can't, look at, you can't look at the cross and say sin's not a big deal. But you also can't look at the Savior and say, I want to run from that because that's the Savior that died for you. It's the Savior that bled for you. How can you uh, spurn a God that would give himself in sacrifice to the standard that you broke? Are you stuck in sin? It's the blood of Jesus that will melt your heart and give you the power to defeat that sin. Are you a hypocrite like all of us are? What you need to think about is not the standard. What you need to think about is the Savior who bled for you. You know, when our kids disobey us, we're, we're upset because they, they broke the law. They broke the standard, right? But ultimately, what we don't want is our kids to just follow our rules. Ultimately, what we want is a relationship with our kids, right? God has given us a standard, and that standard is high. And because we couldn't meet the standard, the Savior came in our stead and bled. And it's only as we look at the cross that we have power over sin, that we'll have power to run from our hypocrisy to the God who bled for us. You pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you uh, have not just given us a savior. You've not just given us a law to show us our, um, our falling short, but you've given us a savior in Jesus to show us your incredible grace. And Lord, I pray that we uh, who fall short daily would uh, fix our eyes on the God who loved us so much that he bled to save us. God, we, uh, we are hypocrites. We are sinners. But, I got, but God, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would change us as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Lord, that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, sin would fall away and the beauty of Jesus would control our hearts and control our lives. It's in his beautiful name we pray.